very, very happy to be here, and it's true. If ever you want to go for a good holiday, please come to Hinjavadi. <laughs> we have a room where we can uh, have you. Uh, appreciate the friendship that we have with Colin and Nawaz, and also the leaders of uh, Word of Grace. Um, yeah, so, so before we share, before we get into scripture, we want to get into scripture, but before we do that, uh, I'd like to ask us a question, right? Colin did share about uh, elections coming and uh, a lot about India. But if you were the president, if you go to the next slide. Do you want to go to the next slide? I, I, I was just going to say how much, I, how much I love Colin and Nawaz, right? If you were the president of, if you were the king, of, of course our country is democratic, it's republics, we have presidents, we don't have, it's not a kingdom where you have kings, but if you were the, if you were a king or a president of this nation, what would be three things you would do in the first year of your governance, of your leadership? Anybody can just shout out? If you were the president, if you were the king of this nation, what would be three things you would do in the first year? You'd... Sorry, sorry, I didn't hear that. Less snacks? Oh, less tax. You want a king who gives you less snacks. Oh my goodness, that's the kind of president we need. Yes, that's right, you get the fuel cost down. Anybody else? You'll give people freedom of religion. Anybody else? Bring inflation down. These are all nice things. Any, anything funny? <laughs> very nice, very nice, very nice. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for sharing. So we're going to be speaking about, we're going to be speaking about um, Jesus as King, right? And it was such a blessing. We sang so many songs about that this morning. I'd like to just say, often, often we are torn between these two desires. What are these two desires? People often find themselves torn between these two desires. On one side, we want a leader who will protect us. We want a leader who will serve us. We want a leader who will take care of our, all our needs and give us a life of benefits, isn't it? And on the other side, on one hand, we want all of that. But on the other hand, we also want independence. We also don't want to be controlled by the leader. We also want to live a life where we are free to do what we want to do. And there are these two complexities. Do you agree? Do you agree? This tug of war between wanting a good king but also wanting personal freedom is actually a glimpse into how complex our hearts are. Right? Uh, just a month ago we celebrated Christmas yet again. We celebrated Christmas and I'm sure you have sung some songs that had words like Joy to the world, let earth receive her. Let earth receive her king. Perhaps you sang songs like, A king is born this day in Bethlehem. Oh, come, all ye faithful, born the king of angels. Why do we sing songs of Christ coming as the messianic king? Why do we sing those songs? It's predominantly, it's predominantly because of these Old Testament prophecies. The Bible presents. The birth of Christ, yeah. 
the Bible presents the birth of Jesus as a fulfillment of prophecies foretelling his role as a king. Okay, and, and we're not going to read, I mean, we could read so many, so many of those. I'll, I'll just share a few of these Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah, the prophet, writes in chapter 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. This prophecy foretells the fact that this child who will come will eventually bear the weight of governance. It signifies Jesus' futuristic role as a king. Micah, the, the prophet says, But you, Bethlehem, in, in chapter 5, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler of Israel. This is identifying Bethlehem will be the birthplace of this future ruler, of this future king. It emphasizes the nature, the, the regal nature of this coming Messiah. And yet, even Jeremiah, he says in chapter 23, you don't need to turn there, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely. It's a glimpse that this king will be from the line of David. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, shout out, daughter of Jerusalem. Your king comes to you, righteous, victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey. It's foretelling that this arrival of this king, the arrival of this king, will not be in, will not be pompous, it will be humble, isn't it? And yet throughout the Old Testament, even, even the New Bible, but throughout the Old Testament, we see how people struggled with the idea, if you can just go to the next, how people struggled to come, with, to, 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 come to terms with God as King. It starts all the way in Genesis. I think our friend shared a little bit about Adam eating the fruit. One of the primary reasons people accepted, uh, sorry, one of the primary reasons people struggled to accept God as king was this inherent problem of rebellion and sin. What we read in Genesis, in the opening pages of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3 was, was that when God laid out a guideline, it was Adam and Eve, it was people saying, I know you've set your rule, but we're going to do what we want to do. And from that struggle to accept, come to terms that God is king, we see several years later on, people had a desire not for God king, but they wanted a human king. Then you see it's spiraling to things like idolatry and having God substitutes and worshipping these God substitutes. There was pride, self-reliance. All of this to say was that when God was instituting his kingdom here on earth as king, people misunderstood God's nature. Even the news of Jesus coming as king was a struggle to people in the New Testament. Because when they read a, a new king is going to come, it was a threat to the political earthly authorities, wasn't it? It was a threat to religious establishments. The Pharisees didn't like it. The Sadducees didn't like it. The teachers of the law didn't like it. People were expecting this king will come as a military, a militant messiah. And that was not what Jesus was 
coming here. In fact, when Jesus was coming, he was disrupting social order. He was engaging with whom? Society would marginalize. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the Samaritans. And he was engaging. Why would this king come to disrupt social order? This morning we're going to see one passage today. We're going to read one passage that shows us what kind of a king Jesus was. But not just that, we're also going to be seeing what does it mean to surrender? What does it mean to submit? What does it mean to have faith in this kind of king? All right? I'm going to invite anybody, if you all can come up and do today's Bible reading. It's the 20 verses of Mark chapter 5. It's the story of Jesus restoring a demon-possessed man. Would anybody be, be kind enough and willing to come up and just do the Bible reading for us this morning? Yeah, I think, why don't you just read it loud? Thanks, thanks. So they came, uh, Jesus heals a man with a demon. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasi. Uh, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chain, but he wrenched and, and the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stone. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I assure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged honestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great lot of pigs were feeding there on the hillside. And they wedged him, saying, Send us to the place, let us enter them. So he gave the permission, and the unclean spirits come out and enter the place. And the herd numbering about two thousand rushed down and sea bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came out to see what it was and had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had uh, had the legion sitting there, clothed in, in the right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demon begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home, your friends, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Yeah. And he went away and began to proclaim the, uh, in the Decapolis how much Jesus has done for him and everyone marveled. Yeah, thanks, thanks. So just a few insights into the nature of Jesus as a person through this story. All right. Here we begin to see 
how Jesus' kingdom, the so-called kingdom, which has a king, where Jesus is the king, is not just about complying to you know, guidelines, bills, policies, and rules and regulations. We see Jesus coming not just as a rule giver. We are seeing Jesus the king coming as a healer, coming as a liberator. And it's important to know that there was no previous record of any king coming as a liberator. In fact, there's no previous record of any prophet or priest in the Old or New Testament casting out an evil spirit. Yeah? And therefore, it needs to be very clear what Jesus is coming and doing. And, and, and this one chapter, this one story is just a glimpse to that big thing. It's something new. A king is coming not just to give rules, a king is coming to liberate. There is, there is no previous reference to this kind of king. If you notice in, this chapter, in these 20 verses that we read, all that Jesus did was to give permission. He allowed the demons to go where they wanted to go. Permission. That's a statement of authority, isn't it? We also see that Jesus does this miracle not by calling on some higher power. He is the higher power. We're reading in chapter 5. In chapter 1, actually, he does, uh, uh, um, what do you say, drive out uh, an impure spirit. That was just one demon, I think. In chapter 5, it's a legion of 2,000. But he doesn't do anything unusual. His strategy for driving out one and 2,000 is the same. He's the king. He just lets them go, isn't it? Another interesting thing is three times, at least in these 20 verses, with the three conversations that Jesus had, they begged Jesus. They pleaded with Jesus. The demons begged Jesus. The townsmen begged Jesus. And eventually it was this demonic man who was cured. He also begged Jesus. We're going to be reading, studying a little bit about it. But four historical insights from verses 2 to 5 about what demon possession meant culturally and historically. There was cultural beliefs about demons. You can go to, yeah. Cultural beliefs about demons. In the Near Eastern Greco-Roman world, there was this widespread belief that spirits could influence and possess individuals. So when Jesus is actually interacting with a man like this, it does give a glimpse into his authority. But not just that. If you read verses 2 and 5, you see something more uh, uh, interesting that's happening. This man who was demon-possessed was not living in the midst of community. He was isolated socially. You read that? Can you read that? If it's there in your Bible? Of course it's there in the Bible. Just read it. Okay. The fact that this man lived among tombs highlights that he was isolated socially. In many cultures, tombs were considered unclean and taboo places. And not just 2,000 years ago, even today, you know, places of graveyards and tombs are considered uh, unclean places. The community likely avoided this man due to fear of his spiritual pollution. And just imagine this demon-possessed man having to live in isolation, contributing to his distress and suffering. 
But not just that, there's another historical insight. The passage mentions, verses 2 to 5, it mentions that he had often been chained hand and foot. And he had often broken the chains and iron. It reflects the, the cities, the town's efforts and attempt to restrain the man because of his dangerous, because of his erratic behavior. Lastly, we also see in verses 2 to 5, there's this self-harming practice or, 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 or behavior patterns that this man is having. The description of a man crying out, cutting himself with stones, suggests how self-destructive he was in some cultural context. It was an attempt to just appease or communicate with these spirits. But all of this to say, all of this is to say that this was historically, culturally, a very deep issue that could not be solved for several years. And here comes Jesus, the King of Kings, just giving permission for the demons to leave. I'd like to introduce us to three conversations that we read in these 20 verses. The first was the conversation that the demons had with Jesus. Right? The first conversation is the conversation that the demons have with Jesus. I'm reading verses 7 to... No, no, no. Yeah, 7 to 13. Right? It's a very interesting conversation. Okay, if you, if you were just to just follow. In verse 7, the demon is saying... In verse 7, the demon is saying, What do you want with me? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Stop there. Now many, many decades later, there was this writer James who wrote a letter in the Bible in the New Testament. In chapter 2 of James, you don't need to turn there, he says, You say God is one? Good. Even the demons believe that God is one. In fact, they tremble. <coughs> this is a perfect illustration of demons acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. In other words... These demons have some credible good theology. Right? It is, it is something worth love. Hey, thanks for this. It is something worth laughing about, but it's also something worth thinking about, right? They know exactly who Jesus is, they're trembling in awe of him. But that is obviously not enough. Okay, the title of the sermon is In the Presence of Power, Understanding, Submission. They acknowledge who Jesus is, but you don't really see them submitting to the kingship. of. You don't really see demons choosing to move away from their old life and trust Jesus now. You don't see that happening. Right? And so, to just acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God is obviously not enough. If anything, it only qualifies us to be demons. Okay, it's obviously not enough. This faith that moves beyond just knowing about Jesus and acknowledging and believing that he's the son of God. There's something more that happens. But this was the first conversation. I'd like to say, this was the first conversation that the demons are having with the king in the presence of power. They're acknowledging Jesus as the son of God 
but not choosing to want to have anything else to do with Jesus. They're willing to go and, uh, you, know, you, know, you know, be in the pigs. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. That's not what submission and faith in Christ looks like. Now you look at the second conversation and this is another very interesting conversation. It's a conversation that as soon as this happens, as soon as Jesus drives out the, you know, the demons, the people come and tell the other people in the town, hey, you won't believe what happened. You know, this man who we constantly try to restrain and isolate and put him in chains and he comes out, he's healed. In verses 14 to 17, now they are having a conversation with Jesus. Like very interesting. <coughs> it, it's very interesting how they respond. They obviously realize the enormity of the power of Jesus. But if you read verse 17, they're saying, Jesus, leave. They're not challenging who he is. They're not, they're not, they're not um, challenging his power. There's everything for us to suggest in those three, in this 20 verses that they acknowledge and they recognize that Jesus is a man with enormous power. And if you've read this story before, if you were to just stop and ask this question, they, when they obviously realized how enormous this, you know, Jesus is, they're seeing it in front of their eyes and they ask him to leave. Why? Why do you think, in fact, I mean, of course, I'm, I'm just paraphrasing it to some, you know, to our context. If, if, a, if, a, if a major problem in our city is solved by this powerful man, I would want, ideally, I would want this man to live in my city. He's solving my problems in the city. And they ask him to leave. They respect Jesus' power. But they didn't want Jesus in their lives. You see, for them to come to terms with Jesus leaving everywhere and living in Decapolis after this event would mean if Jesus is there, They've got to let go of control. They've got to let go of power. And to live with a man who has so much of power meant losing control, guys. And so here's another way to look at it. To live with Jesus, a man in the presence of power, is to personally accept the presence of Jesus, but also to accept the loss of control that comes with it. So we see with the demons, they recognize Jesus as the Son of God, Son of the Most High, but we realize that that's not enough. That's not what submission looks like. That's not what faith and trust in Jesus looks like. And then you see from the townsmen, they respect, recognize, and aware of the enormity of Jesus' power. But that's not enough. Because they ask him to leave. They don't want this powerful man to be in their town. It's a threat to them. 
So that's not what submission looks like. That's not what faith and trust in Jesus looks like. To have faith in Jesus is actually to lose control, to have this unpredictable but irresistible force in our lives. But now we come to the third conversation. It's a conversation with this demon-possessed man who has now been cured. He's no longer possessed by the demon. He's a cured demon, demonic. <laughs> He's cured. And he has a conversation with Jesus in verses 18, 19 and verses 20. And what does he say to Jesus? This is not the demon speaking now. The demons are gone to the pigs. This is the man himself speaking to Jesus. And here's the third time that mentioned in the story of someone begging Jesus. He is begging Jesus. What does it say in verses 18, 19? He's begging Jesus if he could just travel and go with Jesus where Jesus is going. And if you understand that verses 18, 19 carefully, he wasn't just asking Jesus for a boat tour. He wants to be one of the twelve. He wants to be in that core group. He wants to be in that core. He wants to be a disciple of Jesus. He wants to live with Jesus. Okay, of the twelve disciples, it's more than two thousand years, we still talk about the twelve disciples. Do we know this guy's name? We don't even know this guy's name. He begged Jesus to be in one of those elite, you know, to be in one of that group. And Jesus refuses. Okay? Jesus refuses. The demons begged Jesus, and Jesus gave permission. The townsmen begged Jesus to leave, Jesus was on his way. And this man is begging Jesus. Jesus refuses. But what is more interesting is not, it not just that Jesus refuses, it's that the man obeys Jesus. Jesus tells him not to travel with him, not to be one of those you know, co-group 12 people, but to go back to his home, go back to his friends, go back to his family, live a normal life and by being a witness to his town. In verse 20 he says, he does this, this was his call for life. This was God's purpose for his life, to go back to Decapolis. Now if you read in, uh, um, you know, many centuries then the New Testament that Decapolis actually had a lot of believers several years later. The chances are it was he who spoke, uh, you know, witnessed about Jesus. But, but his calling, he, he does it gladly and evidently with all his heart in verse 20. But friends, this is what I want to kind of, kind of talk about. This is what it means. This is what, this is a glimpse of what it means to be in the presence of power to be in the presence of jesus a man a king with enormous power is that even when he experiences an unanswered prayer 
he chooses to respond in obedience that is what faith looks like this is this this my friends is is so different from the demons just saying you are Jesus the son of god or the townsmen saying we respect your enormous power the shape of this person's response is different he's just experienced the king not answering his prayer and he responds in obedience this is mark chapter 5 if you read the you know the previous few chapters you see jesus is the good why is jesus the good king that we all need even today he is in, in mark in, in the book of mark he has authority over creation we sang the first song about it i just realized he has authority over demonic forces he demonstrates love and mercy jesus the king that is but not just that after sacrificially atoning for you and me as we as i think andrew led us during communion he's also personally involved in our lives this king is personally in, involved in our lives as i begin to wrap up as i begin to close i want to i want to remind each of us that ultimately submission and faith is a matter of personal inclination towards christ and what he's done for us right some of you may have heard of tim keller the bible pastor author theologian who, who who died actually recently this is a quote from from one of his writings he says the formal principle of faith is thinking and committing to the evidence of what you see and hear but there is a material principle of faith the material principle of faith is to rest in the love and the work of jesus christ having faith in christ in submitting to the power of this king jesus does require some level of evidence and all of that but it also requires a material experience the material principle of inclining to love and the work of Christ until we see what you until you and I see what Jesus did for us on the cross friends we are even going to struggle with the evidence to really trust in Christ to really submit to Christ to really put our faith in Christ and we got to we got to realize that even though Christ may let the storms rage for a while this king absolutely cares for us we're not coming to Christ as king because he's got a great political agenda and he's a man with a phenomenal military abilities no that's not the reason we're coming because here's a king who came not not with pompous isn't it but he came to die who does that he came to suffer and he came to sacrifice faith is looking at the evidence but it's also delighting in the love that christ has for us on the cross as we close 
I'd like to give you about 30 seconds to just respond to this question and then I'll pray. If we can just <clears throat> silently respond to this question, kind of do a self-dialogue. How can you and I imitate this cured demonic's response to Jesus by accepting his agenda for our lives even if it differs, even if it's different from our expectation. Why don't we just all rise as I pray? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Jesus as King. Dear God, we want to thank you because Jesus in our lives has got very little to do with political agenda and anything else. But it's to do with this inclination and love towards what you've done for us. I pray, Lord God, for each and every one of us here this morning. That Holy Spirit, would you bring alive, would you, would, you, would you bring this truth alive, would you illuminate our hearts to understand that Jesus is the good King that we all need in our lives. And it is this King who came to suffer and sacrifice for us, all for the sake of love. I pray, Lord God, for many of us who might be struggling with responding in absolute submission. We might know who you are. We might recognize your power. But I pray we would go deeper in faith. You would go deeper in faith to live under your lordship even if that means it's different from what we expected our life to be that we would choose to live under your lordship holy spirit make sense of all that needs to be made sense in our lives in jesus name i pray amen you can please be seated hello Thank you so much, Karim, for that stirring, wonderful word. I think we're going to linger in that word just a couple of moments. Yeah. That example of the, of the man who was set free from demon possession and the demoniac who was cured. Jesus said to him two things. He says, go back to your family, to your friends, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you.